welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, renowned journalist and award-winning author Julie Kavanagh discusses her book, The Irish Assassins, Conspiracy, Revenge and the Murders that Stunned an Empire. The moderator is Irish historian and academic Roy Foster. The episode was recorded at the Printworks Dublin Castle on the 9th of October 2021. There's a fashion nowadays for writing the history of a year, either in someone's life or in a historical process. Some of us tend to think more in decades. And I think one of the key pivotal decades of Irish history is the 1880s, beginning with the land war and ending with the fall of Parnell. So many chances appeared and disappeared, so many events came up and destabilized expectations. The book we're going to talk about this evening deals with an event in the 1880s, but it also spools out to take in the echoes and the ramifications of that event. It was an event of great horror and immediacy, the slashing to death with surgical knives of the Undersecretary and Chief Secretary of Ireland to the most senior castle officials in Phoenix Park by the polo ground on the 6th of May, 1881. Julie Kavanagh has written this absorbing and I think marvelous book about it. And I want to discuss at the beginning how she came to write it. Julie is a very established critic and authority on the history of ballet and has written marvelous books on Frederick Ashton and Rudolf Nureyev. This is a very different world, but it's one that she inhabits. It's a considerable achievement, this book. It's quarried from archives, from local history, from murky police records, from newspapers. And she interlinks this world, these various worlds that were affected by this event. Though deeply researched, it's compulsively readable. And it brings to life the tangled and violent tale with freshness and insight. She has a gift for bringing people and events to life. And I think I'd like to begin by asking her to read a a paragraph that I think illustrates that. Julie. On a drizzly day in Dublin at the end of December 1880, a young Englishwoman looking out of her carriage window found herself chilled by the sullen expressions of men on the streets. It was a public holiday and the increased numbers lurking on corners and along the River Liffey Keys only added to the palpable sense of an impending threat. I realized with painful vividness the truth that given a crowd of Irish in any town in Ireland, it would be easy by a single inflammatory appeal from a professed patriot to excite every man, woman, and child present into a patriotic frenzy against England, against ourselves. Florence Foster was the daughter of William Foster, the British minister responsible for governing Ireland and a despised symbol of centuries-old oppression. He had just introduced a coercion bill in Parliament calling for draconian powers to subjugate violent Irish extremists, and his daughter's unease about simmering vengeance was a premonition. It would not be long before the glowering men in the streets were actual assassins, a gang of mercenaries calling themselves the Invincibles. 
As the Forster's carriage sped along the Esplanade, past the Guinness Brewery and towards Victoria Bridge, they planned to kill the horses and shoot the chief secretary, even though a lady, almost certainly Florence, was sitting by his side. A transatlantic murder conspiracy had been hatched, its object to remove British figures of authority regarded by the perpetrators as tyrants. Mr. Forster was the first name. Thank you. Well, there's a number of themes there we'll pick up later on. Notably, the word transatlantic is important here. And the depth of antipathy and ruthlessness and historical hatred which that passage evokes. But, Julia, I'd like first to get to the beginnings of the book and how you, from coming from ostensibly a very different background, a very different range of expertise as a writer, how you decided to take up and put so much time, effort and work into this story? Well, I was about 11 or 12 and we living in, in Cape Town in South Africa. And I remember my father, who was a, a journalist uh, for a national newspaper there, the Cape Argus, talking about the Phoenix Park murders. And it was, it was just a vague memory. And about not until 25 years later did I find a notebook in a trunk where he had written in italic hand very, very detailed account of a trial that took place on the high seas in 1883. And I started reading it and became absolutely fascinated. I sat, remember sitting down by the trunk and carrying on reading. And Your then father having died. My father, yes. My father died in, in 1966. And um, so he had to abandon this project. Um, and in the trunk were papers where he was describing his um, synopsis he wrote to his publisher. And so I just became intrigued, really, and, and, and hooked on the idea and began reading about the Phoenix Park murders themselves and the murder that happened on, the, on, on board ship on the high seas. And that was the beginning. And then I realized this was a, a much bigger story than, than, I, than the murder yarn that I'd, I'd, I'd got excited about, I suppose, at the beginning. And uh, the context, the political and historical context, context became part of the story itself. It was quite nerve-wracking because, as you say, I, I mean, my background is, is color. I mean, I've written a biography of a choreographer and a, and, and, and a dancer and a, and a muse for the tra Traviata. So this was not my territory in any way. But, I mean, any biography you t has to be in context. And my, my Nureyev biography, I'd had to sort of tackle Stalin's mass colonization. And, and uh, so I thought, well, I, this is something I have to educate myself on. But your father's interest came from his own Irishness, or was he part of a very lively Irish community in South Africa? Well, my father's interest was mostly um, because his grandparents had um, lived, had a store in Harrington Road, which was up, up the road from um, Roland Street Prison, which is where the assassin's assassin, I call him, Patrick O'Donnell, yeah. had been held in Cape Town. And there was such an Irish community in Cape Town that um, he, he, he was this sort of darling of, the, of, of their community and he became um, 
people couldn't believe that he was actually there down the road. And so the Irish would bring, be bringing whiskey and, and uh, meals and, and saying the rosary and praying for him. And my father remembered this, being told this by his grandparents. And so it had this, this South African extra fascination for him. Patrick O'Donnell, who was the man who killed Kerry the Informer, is, of course, the centre. He's, he's the jumping-off point, in a sense, and he's the relatively obscure figure whom your book circles back to and back to. But I want to talk a little about the way you constructed the book, because to me it's almost cinematic. The book scrolls in and focuses on certain individuals, and then the camera tracks back and pans out to the larger context. It's a subtle and careful construction, which I imagine took a lot of thought and a lot of rewriting. And it moves from Guidor, County Donegal, to Windsor Castle, to Dublin, to America, finally back to South Africa. And it also explores this, the way you've written it, I think, enables you to explore the links between agrarian violence and Fenian radicalism in a way that opens up avenues that we haven't explored before. Did you put a lot of thought into the way you were going to do that? It seemed to be sort of fairly organic and happened fairly naturally. I mean, what I was trying to do was, was get inside the, 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 the minds of each of the characters and the cast. And, and by doing that, I would go from a cabin in, in Gwador to uh, Windsor Castle, which is, you know, or, or, or where... Because Queen Victoria is an important character in the book. Um, and I think I was one of my main worries was that that it would it would read in a very um, sort of uh, bitty way, and and uh, I wanted it to flow almost like a um, you know like a sort of television drama series like The Wire or something. They cut from from one scene to another, or The Sopranos cut. And I, and I thought if it works, if it works on screen, it, it, there's no reason why it shouldn't work in a in a narrative nonfiction way. It does work for me very strongly, and it also flashes in with little connections where you have Queen Victoria actually reading copies of something that Michael Davitt has written, knowing the names of the people who are involved in the trials of the Phoenix Park murders, constantly asking how it's going on, what's happening. I had no idea that her knowledge and interest was as intimate and as almost prurient. Yes, it was prurient, definitely. I mean, it was, uh, she, she was getting, um, you know, she was insisting on knowing, for example, the exact spot, and she wanted photographs of the exact spot. And, and uh, I mean, it, it was like, almost like a sort of tabloid interest in these, in these murders, and she wanted blow-by-blow accounts. And, uh, and Courtney Boyle um, at the castle was instructed to, to, to provide these um, I mean, she, she was a, she, I, I feel very equivocal about her because she was an interfering old bat, really, you know, in terms of what she did with, with trying to, to get in the way of Gladstone's re, re-election. And uh, I mean, she, I think she was genuinely interested and she, she, she asked for a, one of the, vic, the victim, Thomas Burke's sister, um, that she'd be somehow given some sort of pension and, and she wanted some kind of memorial in, in, in Phoenix Park. And, and so she, she was emotionally very taken. And, and uh, Lucy Cavendish, uh, the widow, again, is an important character in the book. And she was uh, lady-in-waiting to, to 
Queen Victoria. And so, I mean, I think she was, Lucy Cavendish was very, you know, she, she was very fond of, 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 the, of Queen Victoria for all her faults. We'll, we'll come back to those individual characters, especially the women who I think are marvellously drawn. But just sticking with your construction, the way you track the movements of the people you're dealing with, I was reminded, you, you talked about the, the cinematic cut. I was reminded of the way that Trollope describes Ferdinand Lopez's suicide in his novel, The Prime Minister. Do you know that novel? No, I don't. But it it des- describes in merciless detail what he sees as he walks to the railway station where we suspect he's going to throw himself under a train. It describes how the time ticks by on the station clock and on his watch, how the train is coming towards him. But I was reminded of that when I read your description of Lord Frederick Cavendish, this gilded Whig youth, son of the Duke of Devonshire, first day on the job in Dublin Castle as Chief Secretary. Certain amount of nepotism about his appointment, as people said at the time, because he's a great favourite of Gladstone's. He's married to Gladstone's favourite niece. But he's a decent, if not, I think, stellar person. And Julie describes him, first day in Dublin Castle, meeting Thomas Burke, going through all the stuff he has to do, and then walking from the castle along the quays, isn't it? And mm-hmm. then out through the main entrance to Phoenix Park, yeah. walking, as we know, to his death. And you describe it so carefully. I wondered, as I read it, did you footstep that yourself? Did you do I that? I didn't work? actually physically footstep it, but my inspiration, obviously, was Ulysses, you know, just that, that thing of, ah, yes. of, 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 of walking past specific places. And, and, I, and I think I, I, got, I went to Thompson's directory to find out, you know, what, what shops he would have walked past and what, um, you know, the gunsmith and the, what pubs... And then my, I was so blessed to have um, a source that it was a letter that uh, Lord Spencer wrote to Lucy um, because she was hungry for incredible detail as a way of just, just exercising her grief. And so he wrote the most wonderful letter about the, the journey he took with Cavendish from London, the crossing they made, literally the last minutes of his um, last two days. And that was a, a, a long letter that I found at Chatsworth in the archives. Uh, those letters of Lord Spencer's that you describe, and you describe the handwriting trailing and blurred, and he may, he may even have been weeping. As yes, I think there was a splodge of a tear, yes. actually, on the... Terribly okay. vivid the way you, the way you do that. Um, since you've mentioned Joyce, I think we have to deviate slightly into what... The Phoenix Park murders meant for James Joyce and Ulysses. <laughs> Can you talk a little about that? Because many people who don't know anything else about the Phoenix Park murders, if they're literary scholars, will have come across Skin the Goat Harris. And I think we have to hear something about Skin the Goat. Yes, I mean, Joyce was, was pretty fixated by the, by the um, Phoenix Park murders. He loathed um, James Carey, the informer, and he actually he, um, maligned him unfairly, actually. He said he was in the pay of the castle... But he was riveted by Skin the Goat, Skin the Etc., he'd call him, and he keeps cropping up. And, and there are scenes, obviously, in Ulysses that refer to the, the not, not just the murders, but, um, and, sorry, not, not just the murders, but also in, in Finnegan's Wake. You know, he's, he's, yes. he's this, this... Skin um, the Goat, by the way, was the cabman who drove the cab, isn't that Yes, right? yes. But uh, my former Don at Oxford said I was faking. He caught me faking with 
Joyce, so I wouldn't like to <laughs> talk today about it. You'd be better I won't push Roy. it further, but you mentioned Ulysses. I had to <laughs> yes. turn to that. Um, in this extraordinarily interlinked story that you have uncovered, is there anything that really surprised you that you just did not expect? I think the degree to which it was such a golden moment and the way that it, um, the murders just decimated this moment of hope I hadn't realised, certainly when I was looking through the trunk, that there was going to be this vital turning point in Anglo-Irish relations and just, you know, just the degree to that impacted on on, on history. I mean, that was extraordinary. And whether, had it not been for the murders, I mean, would home rule have happened, I mean, earlier in the 1880s? The murders come at the very moment when Gladstone has made... uh what was called a treaty, though everyone insisted it wasn't, with Charles Stuart Parnell, by which Parnell would leave prison and would engage in return for new land legislation to dial down the question of agrarian violence. And it could be seen as the beginning of the what was later called the Union of Hearts between the Liberal Party and the Irish Party. But... The Phoenix Park murders derailed it for a few years and I think permanently derailed what could have been a much bigger rapprochement. I think that's what you're saying. There were things that surprised me about the the book, not particularly that derailment, which I thought I knew about, but the global aspects of it, the way people cross and recross the Atlantic with such frequency and facility, even people at a very humble level of life with very few resources. You know, it wasn't the Ryanair age, but the way the O'Donnell family live in America and Ireland and mm-hmm. back again, mm-hmm. that fascinated me. Mm-hmm. And I thought you drew it very vividly. Well, I suppose, I mean, Irish America was so vital as well. And, and so therefore there was the backing of the, of the financial backing for the murders was being completely organised by, um, it was Irish, the Irish world and, and Patrick Ford. I mean, Pat, Pat O'Donnell was going back and forwards, which, in fact, when I went to um, Gwydor and to Donegal, that was one of the reasons, the sort of local law, that the fact he was going back and forwards so much were reason to believe that perhaps he was somehow being paid by the Clan Gael to... to... He, he was more of a political agent than an yes, the... indi- individual operator. Yes, because, I mean, how else would he have afforded to yes. go back and forth to that degree? Let's get back to the cast of characters. You mentioned the old bat, Queen Victoria, but there's also Gladstone, Parnell, Davitt, and, as I said, a range of very strongly influential and politically active women, not only Lucy Cavendish, but Mary Gladstone, who is effectively her father's hostess and go-to person for all sorts of political connections, Catherine O'Shea and Marianne Byrne. Can you talk a little about those various women? Well... To, to go to the last one, Marianne Byrne was married to Frank Byrne, who was uh, the Land League's secretary in, in, in London. But he, it was Frank Byrne that organised the surgical knives that were the weapons of murder in the park. And it was Marianne, his wife, who actually, she was pregnant at the time, and somehow strung them under a cloak and brought them to Dublin and brought them to the house of James Carey. So she was a, I mean, she was a ballsy lady and 
at the end, after the murders, I think it was a, a um, it was something like two or three years later, there was a, a banquet held in New York, and they sort of it was a banquet to celebrate the the murders by the ringleaders who'd all fled there. And she was given a, a, a very well-filled purse as a, as a thank you for, you know, the risk she took. And how about Catherine O'Shea, a figure who fascinates me and who has received some due for her highly political manoeuvrings as Parnell's conduit to Gladstone? Yes, I mean, she's... Uh, she, she was the, the go-between. Um, and I think she was... I mean, you, this is more your... Sub, more your um, subject Roy than mine but but she enabled Parnell to negotiate with Gladstone in a way that would have been very risky for him but she was his sort of private voice as you like. But her her role in this and her husband's role also points up just how risky a game Parnell was playing with his private life where he had a liaison he had children with the wife of one of his political party. And in order to keep him quiet and acquiescent, Willie O'Shea, a useless person, is involved in the Kilmainham Treaty negotiations and actually screws them up badly by keeping something back in a parliamentary exchange. The risks Parnell took in order to sustain his extraordinarily dangerous private love life, while on the edge of bringing about a great resolutions, not only in Lamb, but possibly in mm. political arrangements between Britain and Ireland, you have to just look open-mouthed at the hubris that he was yes. inviting upon himself. I was thinking really of the extraordinary sequence of events when Parnell is released from prison, yes. goes to Paris to a family funeral, on the way back visits his mistress to see the child they have had together, which Willie O'Shea, who was also in the house, has to pretend he is his child. Yes. And the child is dying. And in that extraordinary situation, Parnell and Willie O'Shea are drawing up what will become the treaty yes. between Gladstone and Parnell. Treaty, as so-called. The arrangement, which will usher in a new, it's thought, uh, era of cooperation yes. between the Liberals and the up-to-then pariah-like Irish party. And it's just on the eve of this detonating act, the Phoenix Park murders, which will change all that. It's the drama of that which I think makes your book read in an almost, I mean this in the best possible way, in a novelised way Mm. from time to time. The larger issues, as I've just tried to indicate, that this story and this shocking event cast light on are enormous. I think Irish or Anglo-Irish relations are illuminated by it and not in a, a very encouraging way. Um, the, it seems to me that the Phoenix Park murders gave carte blanche to the stereotyping of the Irish as certainly incapable of self-government, um, prone to horrific acts of violence and ungrateful for everything that the munificent British government wanted to give them. Do you think that's a fair summation? Probably, yes, indeed. I mean, I think, I mean, it, it definitely, it increased the hostility, I think, that, that could have been, I mean, it was, it, the, the Parnell Commission just showed that to the degree to which uh, there was this underlying hostility. Well, one way in which the Phoenix Park murders project forward, and I mentioned the whole history of the decade of the 1880s, and one of the key events in them was the, f- 
It turned out to be forged letters which the Times published in um, 1888, which I think from the very end of 87 they were circulating, which claimed that Parnell had approved of the murders. And I think the people who set up this conspiracy, and it was a conspiracy, could have chosen no more electric issue, even, what, seven years after the event, Mm. than the Phoenix Park murders. Mm. They had that kind of valency and that kind of association that instantly people were going to say, well, typical, that's what we always knew about the Irish. They were always in cahoots with the murderers. Yes, I mean, yes, Queen Victoria makes that that connection with um, saying that the Land League and the Assassins and the Fenians were all connected. And so she was, she was I mean, almost delighted when the murders proved her right. You get wonderful, gleeful quotes from her. Are they from her diaries or her letters? Both, when... both, yes. I mean, I think she's very funny about her, 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 her labels for Gladstone as wild, crazy, fanatic. And, you know, you have to sort of smile, really, because she, uh, she, 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 she seemed to... Uh, but but uh, she did actually. I mean, she she at the end she was incredibly in, unconstitutional in what, what she was trying to, to oust him and and uh, prevent another um, attempt at home rule. And and she she got the help of of um, Joseph Chamberlain, didn't she? To, to when Salisbury's brief government was going out of power in eighty six and Gladstone was coming in, she instructed her departing ministers to agitate in every village against this vile, idiotic idea of Gladstone's, completely breaking every political Mm. convention of Mm. monarchical impartiality. The other aspect of your book, which, again, I think of novels, I think of Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent, I think of Inspector Bucket in Bleak House, John Mallon, the detective inspector who tracks the conspirators, who has an extraordinary intimate almost cat-like knowledge of what's going on or a lot of what's going on at the level of, ter- of terrorist conspiracy. Malin seems to me to almost prefigure the kind of relations between the, the secret state and the underground and often underhand ways in which it works or thinks it has to work to combat terrorism. And on the other hand, these terrorists, if that's the word to use Mm. here, because it is a tactic of terrorism that the Invincibles are Mm. advocating Mm. and how they go about their operations. I mean, he was extraordinary to to know way, way ahead what was going on. I mean, just a couple of days after the murders, he'd he'd actually named um, Carey and the, the, the other ring, the other main people. And actually on his first report... He, there's, a hand, there's a penciled note in his hand saying P. Egan, Phoenix Papa. So he actually, he'd nailed the, you know, the mastermind right at the beginning. He also predicted this assassination, yes. uh, the, this whole conspiracy that uh, was going to take place. When the Irish Times reviewed my book, there was uh, Frank Callahan. I, I, I brought it to, said that actually this, there's no way that it would have taken place one can be quite certain, this was a pull quote, uh, that Joseph Bigger, Parnell's plain-spoken ally in obstructionism, did not meet emissaries from uh, America to discuss the formation of a murder society. But actually, in November 1881, Sheridan visited Dublin in disguise with dispatches 
And this meeting was held with, with two Irish MPs, Bigger and Barry, with Egan, who was the mastermind, was there as well. And so there was a meeting uh, where this conspiracy was planned that happened and that, uh, that Mallon knew about. So, you know, he, he, he had his network of, of informers and actually his, his biographer, Donald McCracken, who I think is watching this 7,000 miles away in Natal, um, was, you know, his, was riveting on this, just to yes. the degree to which he was hanging out in, in, in bars and, and, and infiltrating the underworld to the degree where he gained all this information. But um, although he, he had these informers, he wasn't actually, he couldn't in court use the evidence of informant. It had to be corroborated by an untainted witness. And so... Uh, and because also you'd lose your, your, the value of your informers if you exposed them. It was shocking to people when Le Caron or Beach was turned up at the Parnell Commission and gave evidence. Yes. Thought, my God, that's who he is. He's, yes. he's been keeping an eye on us all. Well, Malin refused to give evidence. I mean, he was, he was virtually subpoenaed and forced to give evidence. But uh, I think he, there's a quote in, in, in another in memoir by, where he said, I, I prefer Waterloo Bridge. And he would have, you know, he was not going to reveal his sources. Oh, he could have given away so much. Yes. He could have, he could have nailed Patrick Egan but that's complicated by the fact that he probably owed his life to Patrick Egan, who, who, because there was a there was a there was an attempt by the um, Invincibles were going to assassinate Malin because he knew too much, and Egan actually saved his life. He he called he called them off. Informers are in a sense part of the theme of your book, and informer, as I'm sure most people in this room know, is one of the worst names you can apply to anyone in Irish life. Liam O'Flaherty's novel, The Informer, illustrates it at a later stage. There's a curious kind of theology that they apply to themselves. Kerry always said he wasn't an informer because he hadn't sent anyone to prison. Was that mm, right? That's right, yes. Um, which I can't really follow, though his wife defended it after he was killed himself for having become that most hated thing, an informer. And part of the reason why Patrick O'Donnell is a hero to this day in several places, is because he dispatched somebody who had done the unspeakable and had yes. informed. Why did Kerry claim that he wasn't really an informer? Well, first of all, um, he actually wrote to Joe Brady, who was one of the two um, actual murderers. He wrote to, to Joe Brady's parents to say that and he, he names all the invincibles who actually informed before he had. And then after he'd informed, more people didn't. It was only Joe Brady. He, Skin the Goat was in, informed. Yeah. Tim Kelly, the young boy who was the other actual murderer, he tried to save his neck by giving information. So actually, I think Kerry was, was, was rather a scapegoat. So if you turn Queen's evidence in court, that's not the same as being an informer. That's Kerry's argument. No, I think, I think he was saying that people... He hadn't actually sent anyone... To, to, to their deaths because he they were mostly using Kerry to get at the ringleaders. They wanted they knew that he would would lead them to the, the key masterminds of it all. You've mentioned a name that recurs throughout your book, and one of the valuable things of this book is it it shows us just how important Patrick Egan was. He didn't come into the public eye 
he isn't seen as a key figure in any of the histories of the 1880s that I've read. Possibly Lohan O'Brien's Revolutionary Underground, books that deal entirely with radical Fenianism, do stress his importance. But you show that he had fingers in so many pies. She was so influential in getting the money that he, he really pulled most of the strings and then disappears off to America and becomes... What is it, Minister to Chile? Minister to Chile, yes. But, I mean, that was quite important. He was actually, you know, he was um, reporting back to the American president, but he'd always been um, in the shadows before. I mean, I, I, I read, remember reading that, that uh, you might know more about this, Roy, that, that he, was, he was almost like a, a mentor figure to Parnell. And, and, and Parnell actually was very forgiving. Um, he did suspect him. He yes. did, and he did actually um, stop the Land League funds. And, and David suspected him too and actually went to Paris to question him. Um, but, uh, no, he's a, I mean, I think he, he's the real villain of the book. And Henry Henri Le Caron, who's the, the spy, writes pretty chillingly about him, yes. um, how he had this very bluff, jovial, uh, front, but actually it was a sort of, you know, it was an iron fist behind that velvet glove. But a very influential iron fist. Mm, I remember yes. my old teacher, Theo Moody, once said to me that um, Davis was the Trotsky of the Irish Revolution and John Devoy was the Lenin. But I, I wonder who, in, in that parallel, I wonder who um, Egan was. Well, I think Egan, I think he, he was straddling both um, the, you know, he, he believed that the way forward was through the constitutional way. So he, he, he believed in that, but he also um, had his um, activist illegal... You know, he, 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 I think he was straddling two camps there. I think you could do that more convincingly or convince yourself that it was more viable and valid and to be like that if you are based in America or in Paris, and Paris mm. is somewhere that figures large in your story. That's where so many of these people um, are based, and that's where so much money is squirreled away as well, yeah. which later Parnell would be accused of misusing the Paris funds. It's, again, it's, a, it's mm. an aspect of the, the sort of global reach of your, of your story. Which well, I think, I think his, uh, his relationship with... Uh, Patrick Ford was was unbelievably powerful, but also quite you know quite pretty dangerous really. I mean the uh, and the Clan and Gale were worried about it and, and and tried to siphon off some of the funds back into the, um, the Irish independence and that that policy. I mean it was, but they they were they were both. I mean there was enormous amount of money. An enormous amount. We're yes. dealing with millions, millions, millions. In, yeah. in our terms to yes yes which makes just to shift the focus a little parnell's action in cutting off funds to the ladies land league giving them 500 pounds to wind up everything one of the least admirable acts of his slightly checkered career I yes think. well is there anything you'd like to add to how you've put across this extraordinarily um, tangled i was going to say but tangled isn't a fair word complex <laughs> and thrilling story well, just, uh, I mean, I suppose it was it, it just the, incredibly rewarding the way it grew and, and got more and more important. And, uh, you know, having, I thought my, the beginning, I was just going to write about the 
sort of murders and and uh, and then it just snowballed and avalanched into something that was really really a big big story so. were you surprised to find when you went into Donegal local sources and I know you were helped much by local historians yes that there was such a lively historic memory of Patrick O'Donnell and his family and yes I mean I, I think I found it very hard to because there there, there are you know there are two camps that that, that O'Donnell was sent and, and was an avenger um, and that, that he was actually just, uh, it, it, I mean, he was just, it was pure coincidence that he was on the ship when Carey was there. So that was quite hard to, for me to think, you know, what, what was right. And there's the local end. law that, that, you know. Yeah, in the end, I felt reading you, though you were very balanced about this, that you believed that, was it A.M. Sullivan who wrote the long, you think exactly. it was he who wrote a long account that really that's what swayed me yeah. indeed that was um it was after it was called a post a posthumous confession and it was in i think it's united ireland and the whole narrative again but just completely countering the idea that that o'donnell had killed in in self defense and that actually it was cold blooded murder but uh, it and was and that he was an emissary of no, no, that he wasn't. He wasn't yeah. an emissary. I mean, that, that, that. But it was, so to speak, an ideological act. Well, no, I think, I think he was so appalled. We spoke earlier about the, you know, the before. He was so appalled that he'd made a friend of the most despised informer, you know, that he'd actually been chumming up with him, as he put it. That, he, you know, he spent a, a sleepless night thinking, is this man really, because he, he had a different name, um, Power. And is, could this really be uh, James Carey? And then he, he, he says in this posthumous confession that he decided to test him. And then when he knew, he killed him. And drink may have been involved. And I think that's my theory, because he couldn't drink. Uh, I think he probably was an alcoholic, I mean, from, from some evidence. And, and he was drinking that, that day. And in, in, it was a ship's saloon bar. And he was drinking in order to draw Carrie out. It's another of those scenes that might come from a novel, the way you build up the tension of that. It's fascinatingly done. Well, we've talked for, gosh, nearly 45 minutes, and I think it's time that we opened it for questions from the floor. Um, thank you very much. That was very, very interesting. I just have two questions that maybe are quite simple or basic as well. But first of all, um, you talked about kind of the elite reaction, but do you know what the reaction was among the general Irish population to the assassinations? And secondly, this again is probably a very basic question, but why did they use knives? It seems like a very brutal decision and way of doing it, as distinct from maybe guns or explosives. Um, so just those two points. The, the reaction, if, if, if we have it, of the general Irish population, uh, and secondly, why... What was, what, why did they choose that particular method, do you know? Well, the reaction of the... I mean, I think, you know, even, um, even very strong nationalists were, were pretty appalled because, um, because Frederick Cavendish was, was a messenger of peace. So, um, you know, I think, I think that was very shocking for, for people. Um, and in terms of, of, of the, the method of, of, of killing them, I mean, the knives make no sound. So um, that was the 
pure reason, I'm pretty sure, you know, and, and, and the, 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 I mean, the cover of my American edition has the actual, um, has an actual surgical knife and, 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 and uh, you know, that they were, they were beautifully honed and they were, they were deadly. Yes, I wouldn't accuse you of Queen Victoria like prurience, but you do describe the knives with an almost um, chilling level of detail. Um, as to the reaction of the populace at large, I think it was, as Julie says, generally appalled, if you were, let's say, a, a moderate or even quite an advanced nationalist, because what was really striking people was that Forster, the deeply unpopular chief secretary, who was rather unfairly called Buckshot Forster and was blamed for a whole raft of coercive measures. He had resigned and was replaced by this um, unsullied, um, idealistic young Whig closely related to Gladstone, who was seen as, exactly as Julie says, as a messenger of peace. And so it was a sense of having broken a sort of hopeful procession procedure, progression, by killing him. Little like the Ewart Biggs murder to, to kill an, a, an ambassador, in a sense. And he was seen as an ambassador yes. from Gladstone with the, bringing the promise of a new kind of um, entente cordiale. And this shocked many people, even people who had no great sympathy for, for British government in Ireland. Yes, I mean, the killing of, of Kerry, on the other hand, that caused massive celebration. Both Davitt and Parnell, and I learned this from your book, said very specifically and in public, the killing of Kerry was not murder. No murder was committed by Patrick O'Donnell. They were effectively or implicitly saying this was simply an execution mm. and a deserved execution. Mm. I was very struck by that. Mm. Davitt, as an old Fenian with a police record, mm. you might expect Parnell, I yeah. really hadn't, I hadn't realised he'd said that in mm. the public. Mm. Mm. But yes, he said, that he said he was as innocent as the babe on, you know, exactly, born or something. Exactly, yes, yeah. which makes one think again of Parnell having rather closer links and sympathies to Fenianism than used to be generally allowed. And you look at that a little as well in your book. Mm. Bert, is there another question? Did the Invincibles have connections with either the Clan Nagale or any other IRB or Fenian splinter group? Well, the... Um, the British, the British authorities consulted uh, Henri Le Caron, um, and he wrote saying he wrote a long report saying that actually no, I mean there, there, there was no evidence that uh, the clan were involved in any way. I mean it's it's in the notes. I've had the, the full report is in the in the uh, notes in my book. The clan weren't officially involved, but the clan themselves had radical splinter elements, and later there would be a big split in the 1890s. The public record is exactly mm. as you say. Is the actual spot of the assassination marked? There's a pebble cross, I'm told, and, and I'm going to go and see it myself this week, but nothing else, no. No, just to come back to the um, question about was there an alternative view to the received view of the middle classes in Ireland and you know, the, the British authorities as such, um, looking at the denunciation of Kerry and his unpopularity, uh, I, I would accept that it's very hard to, to actually explore the alternative view. 
given that at the time in Ireland, a lot of the peasantry outside of Dublin would have been illiterate in English anyway. And I think that would be worth exploring. But I, I also think it would be very difficult to research. Um, just a comment as well, but it's maybe a question in its own way. Words like horrific are quite loaded and they can be quite relative, even in history, in that a class that may have found, and the British authorities themselves have found, the murder of three people, albeit in a very barbaric way, to be horrific. It's less than 30 years since the famine, where a million Irish people died of starvation, where people were found in cabins having eaten human flesh. Uh, another, million another two million people were forced to emigrate. And the insensitivity that was shown at that time, at, at best insensitive, of the British authorities to the suffering in Ireland, you have to question words like horrific even, how relative they are and how they're, how they're used and that they only represent a certain view, even in Ireland at the time. I think this very important point about the memory of the famine, and I would say Julie's book, to me one of the strongest parts in it was the description of the conditions people still lived in in Donegal in the 1880s, 40 years after the famine, and the horrified descriptions by, was it James Hacktuke, mm. Quaker mm. visitor, mm. trying to publicise the people who were living literally in holes in the ground and barefoot in these shocking conditions. And I think that does, of course, inflect the way that um, a murder of representatives of a, of a British government in Ireland were seen. That said, I think that slashing people's throats with surgical knives in a frenzy of fury is a fairly horrific act. And I think if it was I who used the word horrific, I'm probably going to stand by that. But I do take your point that also an important point you made, which is that to excavate or to, re or to assess popular opinion, especially in a country which is as divided in terms of linguistic and uh, literate ability as Ireland is at this time, is well nigh impossible. You have to rely on folk memory. You have to rely on newspapers, which are fascinating but often misleading records. One of the strengths of Julie's book to me was the balance and the impartiality with which she assessed different kinds of evidence and the sympathy with which she looked. And that's why Donegal is so important in your mm. book, at the conditions of life that mm. pushed people to extremes of um, violence. And sometimes violence is an extreme that people are pushed to. And that was true in some ways in this period. I still would say, as we began by saying, that the 1880s were a period when much went awry or different than it, differently than it could have. That it's an era of radical initiatives, missed chances, the beginnings of what to me is the most important revolution in Irish history, which is the revolution in land ownership, which inflected and conditioned so much about the political revolution that would follow 30 odd years later. I think that the 1880s are a key period. And for me, one of the values of this book is that it brings together in a whole network of connections, 
um, influences, counter-influences, obscurities, mistakes, the ongoing drama and often tragedy of the government of Ireland and helps explain how it ended as it did. British government of Ireland. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter, where we're at, at HistFest. Thank you.